Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? Just a few days ago, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was the first world leader to congratulate President-elect Joe Biden. In their conversation, they touched on a number of topics, including the challenges of climate change. Not the first time the two talked climate. Go back four years. Biden was then a lame duck vice president with the election of Donald Trump. But he gamely traveled to Ottawa and sat at a round table with Canada's first ministers, rooting for the two countries' twinned efforts to keep tackling the problems that lay ahead. And working shoulder to shoulder with Canada, we have proved that uh, solving climate change is not a zero-sum game that pits development and developing economies against one another. Zoom ahead to today. Much of the work Biden achieved with former President Barack Obama has been undone, rolled back by Trump. One person who is acutely aware of that is Obama's former head of the Environmental Protection Agency, Gina McCarthy, who is offering penitence and remorse, even as Biden readies to rejoin the international battle against climate change. And we know that we're going to again join with humility because we have a lot to account for in our absence. And we have to understand that rebuilding international trust is going to be very important for the United States. I spoke briefly with McCarthy, who was a key advisor to Biden during the campaign just a few days ago. I'm wondering what Canada can expect from a Biden administration. And just related to that, because of the rollbacks, how can anybody be assured that, that leadership in the United States actually makes a difference? I can understand that we have a great deal of, of trust that we have to rebuild across the world. I can't undo that, but the one thing I know I can undo are the rollbacks and the disintegration of science. And I think President Biden's plan clearly articulates his, his willingness and his anxiety to get that done as soon as possible. And I do think we're going to be able to move forward and send strong signals right away through the executive authorities that, that the president has in place. And you are right, Canada was a wonderful ally. So we're excited about uh, working together and, and restoring that relationship as well. This week, Joe Biden and political leadership, a solution to climate change? We'll try to find out. What? is the will of the people. What is our mandate? I believe it's this. America have called upon us to marshal the forces of decency, the forces of fairness, to marshal the forces of science, and the forces of hope in the great battles of our time. The battle to control the virus, the battle to build prosperity, the battle to secure your family's health care, the battle to achieve racial justice and root out systemic racism in this country. And the battle to save our planet by getting climate under control. 
Those mentions of the importance of climate and science in Joe Biden's victory speech bring hope to many Americans that his administration will take decisive climate action. Bina Venkatraman is one of them. She was the senior advisor for climate change innovation in the Obama White House. Now she's the editorial page editor of the Boston Globe. Hello. Hello. Great to be with you, Laura. How did you feel when you heard President-elect Joe Biden talk about getting climate under control in his victory speech? Well, I think it's inspiring to see a president-elect make climate change such a central issue. Of course, part of the reason for that is that his constituents, the people who elected him, have expressed their desire to make climate change a priority. It's at the top of lists of Democratic voters, young voters. So to hear to hear him echo that and to really understand and reflect that this is going to be among the top four priorities of his administration was, I think, a really meaningful step. It's hopeful. Uh, it's also absolutely appropriate, given where we are with the climate warming. Now, the Boston Globe endorsed him as the quote is as a transformative president on three issues, one of which was climate. Why do you think that's the case? Why did you use that word transformative? Part of that is because of the way that crisis presents countries with opportunities, presents the world with opportunities. Now, I don't want to oversell uh, what's going to be possible if the Republicans retain control of the Senate. But I do want to argue that we're in a very different situation than we were, for example, in the Obama years, especially the first term of the Obama administration, uh, when we didn't have, while there was an economic crisis, there wasn't the political will on this issue. Uh, we certainly hadn't just experienced a global pandemic of the severity we're experiencing now. And so because people's lives have been transformed so radically, everything from not flying as much to not commuting to work, uh, because there's an economic crisis that has led to millions of Americans being put out of work, uh, has led to a lot of evictions, increase in homelessness, there's a real need for economic recovery of a real substantial scale in this country. So we're talking policy that would mobilize trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars more than the trillions that have already been mobilized to rescue businesses or uh, issue paycheck protection to keep people on payrolls, keep workers on payrolls. And that kind of economic crisis, while no one would welcome it, does present an opportunity to make real investments in the kind of research that's needed to deploy technologies in modernizing the grid and reducing emissions and getting infrastructure to be more climate friendly and climate resilient. And so this is a moment like what FDR had uh, on his plate or what he faced in the 1930s uh, with the Great Depression, with the Dust Bowl, and with a public that recognized the need for large-scale social economic programs to solve problems of inequality. Here we are in a similar moment where there's an awareness, a reckoning, and I think people recognize that that's an opportunity to also address these issues of the changing climate that are only getting worse. And of course, President-elect Biden referenced FDR in, in his uh, speech uh, when he claimed victory, but you also rightly point out that much depends on who controls the Senate, and that is still something of an open question. So tell me what can President-elect Biden do on the day he is sworn in to act on climate, even if Democrats don't have control of the Senate? Sure. So one of the first things that President-elect Biden has pledged to do and that he will certainly be doing is rejoining the Paris Accord, which I think is a sort of ground level 
action on climate change. And he's already been in conversations with world leaders who have mentioned climate change and rejoining Paris as a priority of theirs. So I'd be shocked if we didn't see President Biden immediately act to rejoin that agreement. In addition, there's a bunch of things that President Trump has done under his administration that have eroded progress on cutting emissions. And the U.S. is the second largest emitter of global greenhouse gas emissions with just over 4% of its population, has a lot to reckon with here. We owe the world reversing those measures and getting our emissions reductions back on track. And that includes uh, the loosening of methane emissions rules that happened in Trump's Environmental Protection Agency, our EPA. It also includes the weakening of fuel emission standards, so cars and vehicles that have now uh, lower standards. Uh, all of that can be uh, changed. In addition, uh, the Trump administration weakened the approach to regulating the electricity sector to reduce emissions. This was a signature initiative of the Obama years. Uh, Joe Biden served for a long time in the Senate for decades. He's known as a bridge builder. Now, whether that can cut through the real polarized politics we have and the sort of way in which a lot of these parties are held hostage to their base is still unclear, but I think there's a lot more hope than there would be. I just want to ask you one thing about your experience of working in the White House, though, because Obama certainly met his own frustrations and battles um, in trying to get his climate agenda through. I'm wondering how that experience shapes your view about challenges and possibilities in government. It definitely shapes my views. So working in the federal government can be a bit like trying to swim the butterfly in a straitjacket. You think you have all this power and you have all these ideas and you know you need to get a lot done in service of the planet and of people. Uh, but when it comes to trying to move federal agencies and motivate change, uh, there's a lot of inertia and it's hard to get things done in government. And I think the Obama administration, the president really tried to work on making government a vibrant place to work, bringing in people from communities, bringing people from the private sector. But that was something that was really hard about it. And I think one thing that's going to be really important in the Biden administration is figuring out, like, how do you activate across those barriers? How do you make sure that good ideas on climate change uh, don't kind of drown in too much bureaucratic baggage or bureaucratic um, watering down. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much. Uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Bina Venkatraman is the editorial page editor of the Boston Globe. She served as the senior advisor for climate change innovation in the Obama administration. So that's a view from inside the United States, and we'll hear more in a few minutes about the impact of Biden's win from someone who watched the international climate community react in real time when Trump was elected. But for some perspective on both the opportunities and risks Biden's climate agenda might pose for Canada, we've reached Sarah Petrovan. She's the policy director of Clean Energy Canada. Hello. Hello. Now, when you heard Joe Biden spotlight the challenge of climate change in the campaign, in the debate, in his victory speech, what went through your mind? I think uh, first, went through what went through my mind was relief, relief that we now have a leader in the world's largest economy uh, that understands the importance of climate change and the need for climate action. And then I think once the relief subsided, that was replaced by optimism, optimism that we are actually going to be able to do something, not only to reduce emissions, but to help build uh, an economy around the low carbon transition. Because if the world's largest economy and indeed Canada's largest trading partner is now saying that it wants to do things on 
climate change. I think that that's something that Canada is not going to be able to ignore. But okay, let's get into some finer points of that then. Uh, President-elect Biden promised 100% clean electricity by 2035. What opportunities do you see that presenting in Canada? I mean, Canada is geographically blessed. We have an abundance of clean electricity in this country. We do, uh, particularly out of Quebec and Manitoba, export some uh, clean electricity to the United States. So there is potential that, you know, those exports could, uh, could increase. I think also, too, you know, the interesting thing about, about the U.S. doing that is that they may also be looking for uh, low carbon or clean technology solutions to help them do that. Maybe, you know, it's something like energy storage uh, that helps deal with the intermittency around renewable power. And Canada has a number of clean technology companies uh, in the energy storage space that might find opportunity in the U.S. Unless they get crushed under the sheer size of companies that are doing the same thing in the United States? Well, there's that question. And then there's also the question of how loyal um, President-elect Biden is going to be to buy America policies and protectionist policies, particularly in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. So I think, you know, when we approach what could a Biden administration mean for clean technology in Canada, um, I think we have to approach it from both the side of the opportunities, but also uh, the potential threats. Let's talk about the auto sector. Biden is pledging tougher fuel economy standards, whereas Trump was weakening them. Tell me about what impact you think that could have here. So, I mean, fuel economy standards are an important, um, although I would say, you know, fairly nerdy policy for most most to think about. Simply put, it's like this. Canada's tailpipe emissions are the worst in the world. Part of the challenge for Canada is that we are linked with the United States in terms of their tailpipe emission regulations. And Trump rolled those back, as we know. California used to hold a veto that allowed them to set their own standards. However, that's now in question as Trump has taken that to court. So, you know, with a Democrat in charge, there may be an opportunity to change those regulations again and have uh, stricter emission standards, which Canada would then automatically adopt. Which why, helps. why is it automatic? So it's it's a bit of a, a, a wonky thing, but it's called by reference. And Canada adopts it by reference because we have a continental auto market. In fact, I think 90% of the vehicles manufactured in Canada are uh, exported. You know, majority of them go, I think, to the United States. We don't have the market size required to kind of be able to dictate our own standards. In fact, if Canada had standards that were perhaps different than the U.S., you know, automakers could say, okay, well, you know, it doesn't make sense for us to produce cars for Canada to a different standard than what we produce to the U.S. because your market share isn't big enough, so we're just not going to sell them. But Biden also pledged to make America the global leader in manufacturing electric vehicles, and I'm wondering what you think the implications of that are for our manufacturing sector. I mean, the opportunity for Canada's auto manufacturing sector in the long term is going to be in shifting to electric vehicles. And that is true not only on the automotive assembly side, but it is also true on the manufacturing side for electric vehicle components such as batteries. We know that on the whole throughout the supply chain, 
there are still the same number of jobs, if not more jobs in EV manufacturing than there are in internal combustion engine manufacturing, but the jobs are in different places along the supply chain. So, you know, if President-elect Biden is thinking about jobs for the future, uh, he's definitely thinking about how to uh, how to change the auto sector. I'm wondering, what is the one thing um, that you can think of that the Canadian government could do, the federal government could do once Biden is sworn in that will convince you that Canada is meeting the challenge that is presented by what, what is argued to be U.S. government that's more aggressive on climate change? We've got the right tools in place. We've got carbon pricing in place. I think the next interesting place for Canada is to get serious about uh, transportation emissions and then also scaling up Canada's industries to compete. Steel, mining, aluminum, cement. You know, how can how can we showcase uh, what Canada has been able to do on reducing emissions and helping these sorts of industries uh, reduce their emissions for those that are export oriented, not all of them are, but for those of them that are, to say to the US, hey, you know, we've got actually some low carbon solutions that are worth you looking at. Sarah Petrovan, thank you. Thank you. Sarah Petrovan is the Policy Director of Clean Energy Canada. And just a note, our colleagues in the CBC's Parliamentary Bureau in Ottawa are reporting that Canada's own plan to hit net zero emissions by 2050 could be unveiled as early as this week. Stay tuned. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. One of Biden's promises that got a lot of attention in the campaign was a pledge to end federal fossil fuel subsidies. And you may remember this exchange in the second presidential debate. Would you close down the oil industry? By the way, I would transition from the oil industry, yes. Oh, I would transition. It is a big statement. Because I would stop. Why would you do that? Because the oil industry pollutes significantly. I see. Here's the deal. But it's a big statement. Well, if you let me finish the statement. Because it has to be replaced by renewable energy over time, over time. And I'd stop giving to the oil industry, I'd stop giving them federal subsidies. Now, that is something many environmentalists and researchers have been calling for. And for a time, they weren't sure if they had Biden's commitment. We had a little bit of a, of a freak out in the summertime when it disappeared from the platform. And uh, environmental groups really rallied around that to make sure that it was put back in. Vanessa Corkle is a policy analyst with the International Institute for Sustainable Development, and she's the co-author of several reports on fossil fuel subsidies in Canada and abroad. Um, we use internationally agreed upon definitions when we look at subsidies. So uh, when we define subsidies, we're really talking about measures that the World Trade Organization has identified as subsidies. 
Um, and that includes tax measures. Now, we'll note that the oil and gas sector in Canada disagrees with that definition. But by the international standards, Corkle estimates Canada spent $600 million on fossil fuel subsidies last year, investing in technology and cleanup, as well as financing expansion. Well, the purpose of any subsidies um, is, is to promote economic activity in a certain area. And you know, I think it's pretty clear that if we want to move towards a low carbon economy and if we want to tackle um, the climate crisis, we need to be moving towards greener investments. So we need to be able to phase out these subsidies so that renewable energy and clean energy and clean technology can compete uh, and so that we can repurpose those investments for the really big investments we need to make uh, if we want to get our, our country on track. Ottawa has pledged to phase out what it calls inefficient fossil fuel subsidies by 2025. And according to the Ministry of Environment and Climate Change, it has cut eight out of nine tax breaks for the fossil fuel sector. It's also undergoing peer review with Argentina to ensure a credible process. The government says it will be completed, and these are the government's words again, as soon as possible. But Corkle says the process has been slow and calls Biden's election game-changing. I think it shines a new spotlight on something that was kind of lurking in the background. You know, the Biden uh, team has been pretty straightforward in their commitments. You know, they they would like to demand a worldwide ban on fossil fuel subsidies. Uh, They want to seek a G20 commitment to end export finance subsidies of high carbon projects, including fossil fuel production. Um, And they really want to use the United States role in the G7 and the G20 to push for climate action. And, you know, Canada was kind of middle of the road. You know, they've been doing some good actions in some areas and some not so great in some other areas. But now there's going to be more pressure on Canada to really step up to its international commitments. Now, one international commitment President-elect Joe Biden has pledged to act on is the Paris Agreement. Biden says the U.S. will rejoin on day one of his administration, a move toward his stated goal of leading the world to address the climate emergency. And it's a big change from the American presence in the last four years. UBC climatology professor Simon Donner can attest to that. He was at the United Nations climate talks in Morocco when Donald Trump won the election four years ago. I was stunned and I, you know, obviously given what we were doing there in Morocco, I just kept thinking, what is this going to mean for climate policy? What is it going to mean for what's going to happen over the next, you know, week here at the at the conference, actually? And did it change the tone of the talks? President Obama was still the president. And so his negotiators were still, uh, you know, working on behalf of that government. But there was a like there was a murmur <laughs> throughout the rest of the conference about what this is going to mean Um you know, come January 20th. All right. Well, now here we are at the end of 2020. What impact has the Trump administration had at that global level to have the administration not taking action to address climate change? First thing is that just simply uh, there were all these great initiatives that the Obama administration had put into place that uh, the Trump administration has, you know, slowly killed over the past four years. And it's also sent a a terrible signal to the rest of the world with the U.S., uh, saying they want to pull out of the Paris Agreement. Um, It didn't have a big effect, I would say, on European countries, China, etc. But all of the uh, countries you don't hear about in part of the international negotiations, it gave them grounds to say, you know, why are we here? If the U.S. isn't going to do this, why would Malaysia, why would Russia, why would South Africa be serious about this issue? Well, what about Canada? Do you think it's had any impact on Canada's climate agenda? 
you know, we have our own policies, but it was really mirroring what the U.S. was doing because for Canada to take action, say, on automotive fuel efficiency, we can only do so much on our own. It's going to depend on U.S. automakers uh, and decisions going on in the U.S. You know, Canada's movement has been very tied to what the U.S. is doing, whether we like it or not. With uh, Trump in power, it's made it even harder for the Trudeau government to go ahead uh, with the plans that it's had. Well, then now that we're looking at a, a Biden administration, does the U.S. matter that much? I mean, is it, it is just one country. The U.S. sends a signal to the rest of the world. I mean, the first thing to keep in mind is that the U.S. is the second largest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world. But that's on an annual basis. If you think, look cumulatively over time, uh, the U.S. is the largest emitter over time. And so it's not just more responsible for the problem. It's got a big economy and it's obviously um, such a driver of technology and economic movement around the world that the decisions the U.S. make really influences everybody else. And you can see that, you know, as I mentioned, through sort of some drop in the resolve of some countries around the world about climate change while Trump was in power. Now, I just shift this. I want to shift this conversation a little bit because some of your own research focuses on one of the Pacific Island nations that is so vulnerable to rising sea levels and other climate impacts. And I'm wondering what kind of perspective that gives you when you think of those bigger emitting, emitting countries being so involved in, in decisions that affect the planet. People have heard of the Republic of Kiribati, uh, the country I work in. You might pronounce it Kiribati, but it's actually uh, that's how it looks like it's spelled. Um, but it's actually pronounced Kiribati. You know, countries that are low-lying, very close to the ocean, developing countries in the middle of the ocean um, that are not responsible for the problem. They are not responsible uh, for uh, very much greenhouse gas emissions at all. Um, but they are paying the price. And the good thing that's happened through the UN process is those countries get heard. The reason we have things like the uh, low temperature threshold of 1.5 degrees C and the focus that Canada's even said on we want to avoid that level of warming, that came from small island states saying that we are really threatened by climate change and we need the, the rest of the world to listen to us. You're now having a United States that is going to listen. Is that what we're heading toward? If there's one thing I think you can take away from the way President-elect Biden campaigned is that he is, seems very willing to listen. And I think uh, what we'll hopefully see under the Biden administration, there hasn't been a lot of talk about this, is not just greater efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but greater efforts to help the rest of the world. Among the things that President Trump canceled over the last four years was funding to help the developing world respond to climate change. And I'd like to think that uh, President-elect Biden is going to reverse that. You know, people who want climate action would much prefer to see actual legislation. But short of that, um, there is a lot that, that can be done. And what is important to note is that the U.S. government has the right to regulate carbon dioxide emissions. That was a Supreme Court decision uh, a number of years ago. And, uh, and so the government, without having to go to the legislature, can put in regulations around automotive fuel efficiency, around power plants, et cetera. The challenge could be, though, what Trump did to the courts. Right. You're referring to the fact that, that Trump has been quite successful in installing many more conservative members of the bench in his years in office. Exactly. And not just at the Supreme Court level, but all these um, these lower court levels as well. Well, then that leads me to ask you how reliable the United States can be as a partner in fighting this, particularly for Canada, which has signed agreements with the U.S. in the past. I'd actually worry a little bit for Canada falling behind in the next few years, to be honest, because, you know, if I'm the Canadian government, I'm thinking we better get our act in gear because the U.S. might actually start taking real regulatory action. And so, you know, we've 
talked a big game over the past few years on climate change. Um, but we haven't seen a lot of change on the ground other than the carbon price. And so I think the Trudeau government better be ready. Beyond the symbolism of rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, I'm wondering how hopeful you are that the next four years will lead to actual policies that are needed. I think over the next four years, we'll probably see more climate policies actually being implemented in the U.S., in Canada, and around the world than we have in the last, <laughs> throughout history combined. Because I think it's not just about this change in government. It's a change in attitudes that Americans, Canadians, the majority of which are seeing that we need to take action on climate change and also seeing that there can be economic and, and employment benefits to doing so. Uh, and so I think it's not just about Biden being elected. It's about being in a really important moment in history. Simon Donner, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Laura. Simon Donner is a professor of climate science in the Department of Geography at the University of British Columbia. Time now to thank the people who put this show together. Associate producer Rachel Sanders, producers Molly Siegel and Lisa Johnson. Matthias Wilson is our technician. Our senior producer, Manisha Janakaram. I'm Laura Lynch. And before we go today, we wanted to give the last word of this episode to someone who has some perspective from both sides of the border. Leah Stokes used to call Toronto home, but now she's an assistant professor specializing in energy, climate, and environmental politics at the University of California in Santa Barbara. As we look ahead to Ottawa revealing its own plan for net zero emissions for 2050, we asked her if leadership can be a climate solution. You know, the fact is that climate change is a structural problem. You know, it's really about the fabric of our society. You know, how we power our homes, what is our electricity system made of, how does our agricultural system work? You know, all of these systems are really big. They're beyond our kind of daily lives. And everyday people, you know, might feel that it's hard to pull those levers of power to change how the electricity system is powered or to create a whole new industry retrofitting homes. And that's because we actually need government policy. We need leadership, whether that's from Ottawa, Washington, D.C., Toronto, Calgary, Vancouver, wherever we're talking about. We need government policy to be steering our society towards decarbonization. And so I do think that the climate crisis is a leadership crisis, and we need more and more politicians to wake up and do more when they are in office to use the power that they have to steer society towards lower carbon emissions. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.